nice to, nice to see you again, too. <laughs> Hope you're having a good summer. I uh, have been on a little summer break and had a profitable time. A couple highlights for me. I went to my 25th high school reunion. It's amazing how old people look at those things, isn't it? <laughs> and that was great. And uh, I also uh, spent a week... Uh, preaching at Woodlands Camp in Georgia, and that was a great week. And I did my love series that we we did from First Corinthians 13. And apparently, kids get jazzed up about love still, and so that was uh, great to see. A lot of kids made some pretty cool decisions and changes that week. So here we are back today, and tonight is our baptism service, and. Um, I hope that you're going to be able to come. It's a great night. God's brought us some great weather. And it's exciting to see people following in the Lord's commands for baptism. Well, for the next two weeks, today and next week, we are going to be dealing with the broad subject of purity. And when we planned this walk series and we were thinking about doing uh, a couple messages, there's a couple reasons that we did. The first is that we obviously live in a very impure world, and we live in a very impure American culture. It is so very much like the culture of Corinth. We're coming off of this series in 1 Corinthians, and we talked about how the city of Corinth, their goddess was Aphrodite, the goddess of sex and, and lust and desire, passion, and When I was there, we saw a lot of the statues of Aphrodite that used to be all around the city. And here we are living in our culture, and I haven't seen very many marble statues, but there's Aphrodite's everywhere. You drive down I-65 or 8094, there's Aphrodite's on the billboards. You go to the grocery store and buy your groceries, and as you uh, go out, check out of the, of, the, of the grocery line, there in the magazine covers are the Aphrodite's. You go home and turn on the TV, and during the commercials, or maybe even during the shows, there are the little pixelated Aphrodite's. And if you get on your computer, sadly, like many people do, the porn site's all over Aphrodite. She is everywhere. We live in a very sexualized culture, a very impure culture. And that is not to say that this area is itself impure. It is a gift from God and like a river flowing within its banks is a wonderful and beautiful thing. It's when the water goes over the banks and flows where it shouldn't that it gets destructive. And so We just recognize, you know what, this is a huge struggle. And if we're going to successfully do the Christian walk in the American culture that God has called us to, we had better be mindful of the unique temptations and difficulties that come in this category. The second reason for this is that all too often in church ministry, in our church ministry, we have to sit across the table across the counseling table or whatever it is from a spouse or a couple where adultery has done its damage. And I would guess most of you have not had the, I wouldn't call it a privilege, it is no privilege, but have had the occasion to look into the eyes of betrayal. And it is a very, very painful thing to see. And since we deal with this, we 
felt like this needs to be addressed. And so we are going to do that this week on the matter of uh, marital fidelity and next week in the area of lust. A word to singles as well here today. First of all, I am one of you. I think sometimes when the church addresses marriage or issues related to marriage, the singles can can kind of be like, oh, there's nothing here for me. What a waste of time. Why did I come to church today? And I want to just say to you that we're all in this struggle together. Married, single, it doesn't really matter. And the principles that we are going to be talking about apply just as much to the singles as it does to the married. Because the married are fighting for their marital fidelity and the singles are fighting for their purity. And so we are in this struggle together. I am in this struggle. There's nobody here. In fact, that's one of the things we're going to get to here in a moment is that I I hope there's nobody here thinking, well, this isn't for me. I'm past this. You just hold your horses, okay? Remember I said that. Now, the title of the message is ridiculous, and I just want to admit it right from the get-go. The title of the message is How to Affair-Proof Your Marriage. And the reason that this is ridiculous is that plainly there is no way to absolutely affair-proof your marriage. It's kind of like waterproofing your house. You can have the people come in, they can seal the things up, and they can do their, all the things that they do. But you know what? When, when there's a rainstorm, you still go in the basement to see if it's wet. We can't ultimately affair-proof our marriage. There is no marriage in this room right now that is beyond the possibility of marital infidelity. So I'm just admitting that here from the get-go. And to remind us that the Bible says, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Again, if you are here right now thinking, boy, I really wish so-and-so was here to hear this message, or I, really, I see that couple across the room over there, I hope he's listening because I sort of sense from him that he's got roving eyes. Uh, you know what? You are primed. You are primed with that kind of pride to be the one who falls. We all desperately need to be mindful of these things. I also want to note before we get into it that we're only talking about like one piece of the pie because there is much more to this than what we're addressing here today. Today it's more kind of like the sexual fidelity part, but there's much more to it in marriage that is important to keeping this from happening, including fulfilling biblical roles, love and respect in the relationship, communication, companionship. And I think perhaps most importantly, both spouses having a vital personal walk with God in their own life. Those are all things we could address those, talk about those. They're, they're, they're worthy of it. So bear that in mind. We're only talking about one piece of the pie, but it is an important one. And our passage today is first Samuel, sorry, second Samuel 11 verses one through five. And what we're going to do today is we are going to dissect the most famous adultery of all time. And then we're going to reverse engineer it. And by reverse engineering the most famous adultery of all time, we hope to uh, avoid walking the same path. So let's identify who we're talking about here in the story. And it has to do with this guy named David. David. Who was David? We We find David in chapter 11. Now he is the king. He is a great king. He is a hero king. He is a warrior king. 
David is a man of great significance in the Bible. Let me give you some examples. In ninth grade, he defeated Goliath and saved the armies and really the nation of Israel. Ninth grade. By twelfth grade, he is commanding all of the forces of Israel. So this is a guy who started off really well, wouldn't you say? On top of that, he writes huge portions of the Bible, specifically in the Psalms. He uh, was a musician. He was a leader. He was a hero. Uh, He was a psalmist. He has an entire book of the Bible that is basically his biography, 2 Samuel, some big portions of 1 Samuel as well. And, And perhaps most importantly, he is the only one in the whole Bible that God says this about him. Here is a man that is after my own heart. So we're, we're talking about an impressive resume, don't you think? Of anybody in the Bible, perhaps the most impressive resume, not just what he did outwardly, but where his heart was. God declaring, here's my man. And I think this is part of the point. You look at the resume, you look at who he was, all that he did, and we have to look at that and say, listen, if a guy like that could fall into what we're going to see in chapter 11, then what about you, little old you and me? If he could do it, so could I. And I just got to say it again. Anybody is sitting here thinking to themselves, I don't need what this is all about. I'm too godly. I'm too spiritual. I'm too old. This is for all of us. And I'm, up, I'm not up here just talking about it, I am in the struggle as well. So with that said, let's get into it. And as you read through 2 Samuel, and it's wonderful reading, it actually kind of prompts me to maybe think about doing something like this as our next series. It's such great reading. Second Samuel, like David, is just, he's flying high. I mean, he is winning battles left and right. Uh, God's giving him success on every side. His kingdom is expanding. You know, the borders are expanding. He's just whooping up on everybody. And then you get to chapter 11, and it's like a sudden train wreck. All of a sudden, boom! Like out of the blue, it seems, David does something, it would seem, so completely out of character. And this is the first point as we dissect the steps of, of adultery. This is one of the most important points of the whole, the whole thing. It would appear that David was flying high, but we look into the story and we see little cracks in his character way back when. What I'm calling the first step, and that is desensitized. Now let me show you, if you want, you can turn back to chapter 5. I'm just going to refer to it really. But back in chapter 5, David is king over Israel. He has consolidated uh, the throne. He has, he has built a new palace. It's the grandest building in all of Israel. He's winning battles on every front. Everybody's talking about him. His polling numbers are high. And then you get to verse 10 of chapter 5, and it says, it says this, And David became greater and greater. All right, we get that. But we see a little chink in the armor of his character in verse 13. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. 
Now that seems kind of innocent, doesn't it? I mean, it's just a little throw in verse there. It's just kind of there. Especially by the standards of the day. What David is doing here as the king is like expected. If you're the king, this is like, this is what you do. You add concubines, you add wives to the harem. It was culturally completely acceptable. It reminds me, two years ago I was in, in Beijing and uh, we were touring the city and we went to the Forbidden City. Did you know that that's not just a restaurant? It is actually a place in Beijing. Uh, it's the palace complex of the emperors, the famous emperors in, in China. And you walk in through this gate and there's a huge courtyard big courtyard and there kind of in the distance you see the first in a series of palaces but i'm standing in the courtyard and i'm i'm kind of looking around at all of this and down both sides of the courtyard are these they're like it, it, honestly it looks like those cheap hotels you see along the road that's you know there's always vacancy in them where it's just kind of like door 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 i believe it was on both sides of this courtyard and i just saw all these doors I mean, tons of doors. And I said to the guy that was kind of showing us around, I go, I said, what, what are all of those? And he goes, oh, that's where the concubines stayed. Wow. <laughs> I thought to myself, that's a lot of concubines. And, uh, but it just goes to show that this is what you did. If you're the king and you can do whatever you want, you add wives to the harem, you have concubines to the, to the harem, completely acceptable, it would seem. Except we're not talking about the king of China here. We're talking about the king of Israel. We're talking about the king of God's covenantal people. We're talking about a king who is supposed to come under the law of God. And Deuteronomy said there were three things that the king of Israel was not to do. He was not to acquire many horses. He was not to accumulate much gold and silver. And he was not to take many wives. And yet, what do we find David doing right away when he consolidates the throne? Taking many wives. And we see a desensitizing in David. A willingness to set aside the will of God, in order to satisfy his own desires. Let me give you another example of this in 1 Samuel 25. You may know the story of Abigail and and Nabal. David is not king yet, but uh, there's a confrontation with between David and, and Nabal, and Abigail hears that there's going to be a confrontation, and the text says that Abigail was a beautiful and discerning woman. And she steps in and intervenes and wins David to not destroying Nabal and his whole family. And Nabal hears what Abigail did and that David was coming to wipe him out. And the text says that Nabal, Nabal, like, had a heart attack, died in that moment. David as long as left. But word gets to him that Nabal's dead. You know the first thing David does? He sends a messenger for Abigail and says, I'd like you as my wife. Will you come? And she did. She became his wife. Now, she was a widow. It was, it was legit. Of the fact he had a few already. But seemingly innocent. Except what do we see with David? We see a man who had an eye for feminine 
beauty. We see a man who, when he saw feminine beauty, thought to himself, I think I might like to have her. Do you think the first thought that David had regarding having Abigail as his wife was after he heard that Nabal had died? Like the messenger came to him and said, hey, Nabal died. And David goes, I never had the thought before right now, but Abigail, she could be my wife. I sort of suspect that he drove away from the whole experience thinking to himself, now if he ever dies, I'm, I'm, yeah. See what I'm saying? He had an eye for it, a desensitizing. And these are the little cracks that we see back in the story, in the backstory of David. Over time, David became desensitized to what he was actually doing, how he was thinking, how he was relating to women, how he was viewing women. And I think that this is how it starts. You don't start, you don't start on the rooftop of the palace seeing Bathsheba. It starts back in the story where we begin to change the way that we view members of the opposite sex. We begin to objectify men. We objectify women and view them not as persons, not as as people with a story with a mom and a dad and, and a husband maybe, or not seeing them as a brother or sister, in this case sister in Christ, but to see them as an object of gratification and ego. And these little departures from purity and thinking eventually become ponderings. Hmm. And ponderings work into the imagination and they become fantasies. And then one day you're on the rooftop and you see Bathsheba. And that is how you get there. And my dear friends, this is why we have to be so careful in analyzing the way that we're looking, the way that we're thinking about this category. We live in a culture that is so, just calls us to think about things from a, in sexual categories all the time. And we become, we become like pornified in our, in our perspective. And then all of a sudden, the crude sexual joke at, at work, it's a little funnier than it used to be. And uh, the coworker is a little more interesting than she used to be. And the sex scene in the movie seems a little less troubling than it used to be. And slowly over time, we get desensitized to the way that God would have us to think and then ultimately to act. Adultery begins in the heart and in the mind. And in the imagination. And we see David as an example of how this works. Now, the second stage in adultery is where we pick up the story now in 2 Samuel 11. So with that as a background, with that as a kind of perspective on the way David thought and acted and related, we pick it up now, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, and we'll stop there. Okay? 
Now, in biblical times, this is the way that it worked. When there were hostilities between uh, countries or peoples, they would, they would go to war. But they, they wouldn't go to war in the wintertime, because in the wintertime, there was no food in the fields. You couldn't sustain an army, so they would call a big time out. They'd all go home, and they would wait for the spring. And once the spring came, out they would go to battle again. And the text says that it was the springtime, and so it's the time when kings would go to war. Except, what do we find David doing in the time when the kings would go to war and lead their armies? Is David leading the army going to war? No. David sends all the other men to go out and to go to war while he stays back in Jerusalem. And we see here right away now, there ought to be a kind of a foreboding sense because David is not doing his duty. David is not, I mean, he's the warrior king. You would think if there would ever be anything David looked forward to, it's the time to go to war. This is my spiritual gift. I'm going to go out and we're going to, we're going to knock him out. But David remained at Jerusalem. And so we see that David, this is David at leisure. This is David taking it easy. This is R&R. This is, this is David uh, sort of resting on his laurels and sort of, f- f- what was it, feeding his oats, feeling his oats. One of you farmers will tell me afterwards, you know, this, whatever that is. What is it? Not so, well, he's sowing oats too. <laughs> he's sowing wild, he's about to sow wild oats, but I'm talking about he's feeling, there's this word there, never mind, but he's having, just having the sense of, you know, I have, I have arrived. Look at me. In fact, the picture here, he gets up from his couch. So it's not like he's, at, he's not back there getting all the reports, sending out little memos, do this, do that to the army. He's not managing Jerusalem. He's not actively trying to promote agriculture in the, in the, in the, in the country. He is laying on his couch, totally at leisure. I wonder if you can hear the contented sigh that he has. Look at me. Look who I am. I'm King David. Someone wrote, when we are out of the way of duty, we are in the way of temptation. Have you noticed that? It's harder to deal with temptation on vacation, isn't it? Harder to deal with temptation on the day off, isn't it? Because I'm out of my sense of duty, I'm out of my routine, I'm out of my disciplines, and now often we are sitting ducks. And so we have here in the story now the, the, the combination, the meeting of compromise from the years gone by, these cracks that we've already talked about, now meeting up with opportunity. David is careless. David is, David is relaxing. David is, David is chilling out. And remember, this is a man who is accustomed to seeing a woman and adding her to the harem, whether that be Abigail, the other wives that we've talked about. So what happens to King David, the man after God's own heart, the man who wrote scripture, the man who was anointed by Samuel, this great king and hero? What happens to even David when compromise meets opportunity? Look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. All right, David gets up from his afternoon nap, decides to go out and to walk on the, on the roof of the palace, 
And the old city of Jerusalem was, it looks like, it looked like the front of a battleship. Where it kind of was high in one set and it kind of worked its way down, like the, the USS Iowa, for example, the great battleship, the USS Iowa, uh, which is so much bigger and more awesome than like the little schooner, the USS Indiana, you know, the, the, the Iowa, that front of that battleship. And so guess where David's palace was? We think highest point in the city. So when he goes out on the roof of his palace, he has a commanding view of everything going on in the city. And again, he's just, he's just feeling good. So you can see David kind of walking out on the palace and he's just, he's just sort of, life's good and, 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 and look, look at the city that I have built and I'm the king and boy, can you believe a shepherd boy would ever become a king like this? And he's just feeling it, you know? One commentator says that as David surveys, David has everything, but he doesn't have enough. And as he's gazing on the hustle and bustle below, his eyes fall upon, the text says, a woman. Okay? And it tells us three things about her. Number one, uh, she's bathing. Number two, she is beautiful. And number three, she's married. Now, was it wrong for David to see her? I would say no. You live in a broken world. We see things that we wish we didn't see, don't we? We hear things that we wish we didn't hear. You turn the TV on and suddenly there's something there that you wouldn't have picked to watch. Things... We, you can't help but experience things that you would rather that you didn't experience. So at this point, it's not sin for David to look down and there's a woman who is bathing. However, it is opportunity for our real character to come out in those moments when our defenses are down and we don't expect it. And here is where the, the compromises of the days gone by and the cracks in the character meet up now with an opportunity with a woman. And the text says something unusual here. It says that she was very beautiful. And the Hebrew word that is used there is reserved for only a couple people in all of the Old Testament who were the most strikingly beautiful of all. So... She wasn't just kind of, she was remarkably beautiful. Interestingly, that word is used for David himself in terms of his appearance and that he was a, a handsome man. She was strikingly attractive. And what do we learn with Abigail? David has an eye for that. Just the kind of woman that David likes to add to his harem. But oh, oh, there might be a problem. There might be a problem. But as David sees her now, the initial look becomes a stare. And the stare becomes a leer. And the leer becomes lust. And now it begins. The adultery of the mind. What Jesus talked about uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. That desiring within something that if I acted outside upon it, it would be sin. So it begins, the fantasy, and David is captured, which now leads then to the third step of adultery, and that is obsession. 
obsession. Look at verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? James chapter 1 describes how sin works in our hearts. It always begins inside, doesn't it? It always begins on the level of my desires. And the warning with that is that if I don't win the battle on the inside, if I don't win that internal struggle with whether or not I'm going to want what God wants or I'm going to want what my flesh wants, if I lose the battle there, eventually that will come out in action. It eventually shows itself. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Guard your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. As a man thinks within him, so is he. All these things, our lives and our words and the way that we live are all reflections of what is true in our hearts. And so that is why adultery, the battle for sexual purity, it doesn't begin with the playboy and it doesn't begin with the porn site. It begins with the heart. And on the heart level, David is now captured. He has seen her. His, his, his flesh has, has, has gripped him now and he is obsessed with her. And he's thinking about the possibilities. And maybe he's done this before. Maybe he's seen other women before. But what do we know about this moment in the story? Where are all the men? They're all out fighting the war, aren't they? Hmm. There's no man around. And I am the king after all. The man after God's own heart. I don't think he thought that thought, actually. And he begins to mull in his mind the possibilities. Wow. I guess it wouldn't hurt to inquire about it. And so he sends a servant to check out who is this and give me some information on this woman. And the servant comes back and his report, every word here is is important. Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, if you're unfamiliar with Old Testament like political players, Uh, you may not realize that this is a woman of some significance. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, she's the daughter of Eliam. Who was Eliam? Eliam was one of David's greatest military leaders, one of his greatest warriors in his whole army. David no doubt knew him well. This is his daughter. In addition to that, Eliam was the son of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was David's basically his secretary of state his most trusted advisor, Bathsheba, is his granddaughter. And on top of that, she is the wife of Uriah. And Uriah is listed as one of David's great fighting men. And no doubt David knew who Uriah was as well. And so we see here the servant, I think, implicitly saying something to David. Isn't this the daughter of Eliam? And the wife of of Uriah the Hittite. 
And you see, I think, the servant trying to put some moral sense in David to remind him that this woman is off limits, to remind him that she is tightly connected as wife and daughter and granddaughter to three men who have given their life in service to you, David. And what we see here with this sexual obsession is what we see sadly in the church. I'm here to tell you, when you talk to somebody who is obsessed over somebody, you can remind them of who they are. You can tell them how much they are going to sacrifice if they go with that man or woman. You can tell them that their kids will not respect them. You can tell them they'll lose their reputation. You can say to them, you're going to lose your job. You can say you're losing your place in this church. You can say anything that you want to say to somebody who is obsessed. And in their mind, they're thinking this, but she's so pretty. When we are obsessed, we are as morally dumb as a stump. And David, we see that here, casting off all moral obligation, doesn't care who she is. Is it about Bathsheba? It is not about Bathsheba. It is about David and his ego and his need to have her. And I want you to remember that I told you that. Because maybe in this calendar year, we're going to be sitting across from you and saying, do you realize what you're prepared to give up for this experience? And to go down through the list of all the things that you will give up for it. And we will say to you, do you realize what a fool you are? She is not worth it. He is not worth it. And finally, fourth step in adultery is the act itself. Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Character compromise, met with opportunity, which led to obsession, which ultimately led to the act itself. And that is the way it goes over and over and over and over and over again in this community. As people forsake their marital covenants, maybe their commitments to single sexual purity, forsake everything for this person. And the rest of 2 Samuel is basically the sad consequences of what David's actions that one day produced in his story. And praise God, the story is redemptive. It is redemptive. David repents. God forgives him. Uh, You can read his confession in Psalm 51. But there are consequences to the things that we do in this category. Adultery is like that. And so there you have the story, the most famous adultery 
of all time. And as I said at the beginning, what we want to do is we want to reverse engineer this because this is not a message on how to have adultery. This is a message on how to avoid it. And so now seeing the way that it works, let's reverse engineer this thing and talk about how can we protect our marriages, our singleness, our hearts from walking down the same path that David did. And I've got a couple things here uh, to, to share. And I think all of these are important. Number one, and this might be the most important one, do not trust yourself. Do not trust yourself. If there's any one of us that are looking at this story and are thinking to themselves very self-righteously, well, I could never do that sort of thing. I can't believe the church would be talking about such and such a thing because I don't know anybody in my small group who would dare to do something like that. You are denying most of the theology of this church. Because the theology of this church is that we are great sinners. Christ is a great savior for sure. But we are great sinners, and even as believers, we still have the old man, we have the old nature, we have this basic inclination, the flesh delights in things that God hates. We still have that, we'll have it until the day that we die. And so because that is true, what I need to have is a basic fundamental distrust of my ability to, on my own, stand up against temptation. My mentor in in ministry used to say it this way, trust yourself as far as you can throw an elephant. And that's not very far, is it? Trust yourself as far as you can throw an elephant. We get ourselves in so much trouble because we think that we're above things, that we, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm godly now. I've been a Christian a long time, whatever it is. I, I can't fall in this area. I remember some years ago, I was spending some time with uh, an organization. They had a group of speakers, and these were ex-pro athletes who would go and speak at schools on drugs and different things, and I was doing having, having a little role with them. And they were having a discussion that I wasn't really, I was in the room, I wasn't really a part of it, but they were having a discussion as to whether or not it was okay for them to be picked up from the airport by a woman. You know, they traveled all over the place. What happens when it's just a woman in the car to drive them to the school? What should they do? And there was this kind of bantering back and forth about whether or not that was appropriate. And I remember one of the guys very sanctimoniously, very self-righteously saying, well, gentlemen, here's what I can tell you. I don't know what's in her heart, but all I have in my heart is Jesus. And I'm in the back corner and I want to do this. I am a sinner. Apart from the grace of God, there go I. Were it not for God's grace every day in my life, I could do this and any number of other horrible things. I cannot trust myself. We ought not trust ourselves. My heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the little bit that I see in my own heart, this is your pastor talking, okay? 
glimpses that I have seen of my own heart and my fallenness, even in this category, scares me. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Amen. And because of that, we have to be so very careful. If David did it, then so can I. The second thing I'm taking from a book by Jerry Jenkins, who wrote a book, Loving Your Marriage Enough to Protect It. And he has, he calls them hedges. To love your marriage enough, or if you're single, to love your purity enough, to put some hedges around that relationship. And a hedge is basically a wisdom protection. Something that you just say, you know what, it may or may not be absolutely morally right or wrong, but I'm just going to protect my marriage by putting some things in place that will keep me from being in a moment of compromise and opportunity. And I would recommend these to you. Number one is simply this. Never be alone with a member of the opposite sex. Never be alone with a member of the opposite sex. Now, there are exceptions to this, I think, if they're a family member. Frankly, singles in dating, I don't know how you apply that you know, exactly, so there's wisdom and things needed there. But So begging the obvious here, as a general rule, to not be alone with somebody that is not my spouse. Why? Because I know that in my heart, I don't just have Jesus. And even the most godly woman in our church doesn't just have in her heart Jesus. And I can't trust myself. I think if every married couple here had this policy, we would be a much more protected marital congregation. Now, you might be going, is it wrong to be alone? I mean, come on, is it absolutely wrong? I don't, I don't think it's absolutely wrong. It's not being alone with a woman or a man that is wrong. It is um, sexual impurity with them that is wrong. But if you are never alone with somebody, you will never have adultery with them, will you? It fundamentally requires that. This is known as the Billy Graham rule. Billy Graham had this rule for his, I think himself, and I think his organization as well, and it it just became known as that because it was associated with him, where they just said, "Our, our people will not be alone with somebody who is not their spouse. And, you know, when I came to Bethel, I asked the leaders for that. I said, give me that mandate so that when I'm in an awkward situation... I go, you know, I'm going to a house for dinner with a family and the husband's not home from work yet and it's just her. I can say, you know, I'm not allowed to go in here right now. And she, oh, I understand. It's totally fine. You know, that kind of thing. I want that rule that gives me an out. And husbands, and you can do the same. You know, my spouse, uh, we've just agreed that we're not going to be alone like this. Don't mean nothing by it. Appreciate you a lot, but we're just not going to be alone. It's a hedge. It's a wisdom. Why? Because I'm a sinner and I cannot trust myself. Or trust my reaction to this other person's sinful inclinations. So love your marriage enough to protect it. Secondly, another hedge, is to, in your general relating to people, to err on the side of restraint in social touching. 
And you kind of know what I mean. I mean, there's a big difference between the, hey, good to see you, the sort of the side hug kind of thing. And then the person, there's always one in the church who's like, hey, praise Jesus, we're at church today. And you're going, hey, 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 you know. (laughs) I don't need that. And you all know how I feel about holding hands in prayer and stuff. So, and you know, if you're that in our church, I don't know who it is in our church, but if you're that in our church, you can probably know because you walk through the commons after the service and it just parts like the Red Sea. Nobody wants to be near you. Why? Because you're just, you're too touchy. Is that conviction I hear? Now, I want us to be warm and engaging, and there's a certain level that I think is appropriate, but be careful. Be careful. Next, avoid flirtatious or suggestive language. Again, the battle is, even in jest, the battle is in the heart level. And what oftentimes happens with couples, especially, is they become friends. How often do we hear about adultery between two groups that were friends and the, you know, one of the spouses and the other sort of hook up? Oftentimes it begins, they're going out, they get comfortable with each other, they begin to talk about intimate things, they even maybe joke about it with each other, and they leave that experience and there is this this thought, oh we were joking, we were joking, ha 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 ha, but there's the thought, isn't there? Is he interested in me? Does she find me attractive? I don't need to know about what that couple does in their bedroom. That is unhelpful to my mental purity. Here's a big one. Force yourself in moments of temptation to consider the consequences of doing what you're thinking about. Now let's go back to David in the story. Would put the next slide up if you would please. Here is the, let's do a little cost benefit analysis of David's adultery. All right. What did... What did it cost him? But then what was the benefit of it? Well, he broke the 10th commandment by coveting his neighbor's wife, but he did have a night of pleasure. He broke the 8th commandment, he stole his neighbor's wife, but he did have one night of pleasure. He broke the 6th commandment, murdering Uriah as a result of all this, but he did have a night of pleasure. He, his baby died... But he did have one night of pleasure, mockery and scorn in all of Israel and from his enemies. But he did have that one night with Bathsheba. His beautiful daughter Tamar was raped by his son Amnon, but he did have that one night of pleasure. His son Absalom murdered his son Amnon, but he, he did have that one, that one night, those few minutes. Absalom hated his dad and led a national rebellion against David, but he did have uh, the little little time with Bathsheba. He was betrayed by resentful former friend and grandfather of Bathsheba, Ahithophel, but he did have a night of pleasure. Absalom slept with David's harem in view of all Israel, but David did have that one night with Bathsheba. His son Absalom is killed, but he did have the night of pleasure. His kingdom was shaken and never regained its former glory, but there was that one night with Bathsheba. And if I'm annoying you by saying those over and over again, it's because I want us to get the point. If David, as he was on that rooftop and looked down and saw Bathsheba, if he could have known all that this was going to cost him, he would not have given her a second look. 
And when we morally can think about, as I'm pondering what, oh, I have this desire for, and it's not just sexuality, it could be anything, but as I, as I think about, should I do that? Oh, I want to act upon that. I feel desire for this. If I can stop for a moment in a, in a moment of clarity to actually think what this action is going to cost me, we won't do it. Bring it to mind. Think about the consequences. And of course, what temptation does is it front loads the pleasure and it back loads the pain. And so temptation, like, like, a, like, a, like a, a, a fishing hook, you know, hides, they hide the little hook in the little feathers or whatever it is, and then wham, sets the hook, right? That's the way the temptation works. If the fish knew the hook was there, would he go, I'm going to bite? Just the dumb ones. <laughs> Don't be a dumb fish. Sin is never worth it. No sexual experience, no matter how wild and pleasurable, is worth the pain. You can ask David. I think he would amen that. Now the third thing is more on the uh, prescription side. The previous were more preventative medicine. This one is more prescriptive, and this is the last one. Is It's not just in Christianity that we're all like, okay, don't, 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 restrain, 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 restrain. God actually has a plan for the proper expression of those desires. And that plan is marriage. And so, on the... On the offense side here, Christian couples here, listen, there is nothing that you have that is a better resource for avoiding temptation in this category than to have a flourishing and God-honoring marriage. This week, I, I, I put some fertilizer down in my lawn. My lawn was looking a little... A little rough, had some weeds, and so I decided I had time to give it, give it a little fertilizer. And you know what I found with, with weeds in my yard is that they, there's, there's two ways to get rid of weeds in the yard. One is to walk around with a little spray bottle, and I got one of those. And you have to be very careful that you grab the bottle that, that says kills weeds, not lawns. If you didn't know that, that's a big mistake to make. I can walk around and I can spray the weeds that are, I see in my yard. But what I've noticed is the weeds tend to grow in the in more of the like bare patches of my yard. They don't grow where the grass is thick and robust. Sexual sin, I think, is like that. Marital infidelity is like that. It tends to grow when the marital lawn is dry and bare. And so one of the most important things that you can do is to work hard at your marriage. I have a pastor friend, he says it this way, I don't know if I like this that much, and so, but I said it last night and they encouraged me to say it again today. So your brothers and sisters wanted me to say this. 
Uh, but he says it to his congregation. He says, you don't go out for hamburger when there's steak at home. And by that, I want it to mean the fullness of relationship, not just this one category. But there's truth in that, I think. But it definitely includes this category. And this is one thing the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And that marital duty in context is this category of sexuality. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And remember, he wrote this to the Corinthians who lived in the city of Aphrodite. He knew what a challenge it was to walk down the street and to see naked Aphrodite on both sides. And we did a whole message on that. I'm not going to get into it. But here's the big point. Take the energy that lust and obsession require. Take that energy and apply it to cultivating a relationship with your spouse that is vibrant and temptation resistant. And you might be like, well, I don't know, Pastor Steve, how do we do that? I don't know. I'm single. Figure it out, okay? I think most of the married couples that are, that are, ah, marriage, you don't need to read a new book. You don't need another sermon. You know the things that you ought to be doing. It is simply because you are lazy or familiarity's bred contempt or you've disheartened or something like that. Get over that and cultivate that relationship. Now, finally, here's the last thing I want to say is that The bad news is that adultery is sin. The good news is that adultery is sin. Because it's a sin, it means it's something that Jesus died for. Which means that there is forgiveness for adultery. And there is restoration with God. And there is restoration possible with man. And if you're here today, and I, I mean, and think in this room here. No doubt we have people sitting here who have a secret. And that secret may be a thought life, something you're pondering. It may be something that hit stage four and was an act itself. And this secret eats away within you. You have come to the right place because... The gospel is about God's grace to the repentant and the contrite. And if we will confess our sins, turn from that sin for sure, but confess it to him, he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus died not for good people. He died for sexual sinners and he died for the greedy and he died for all the sins of the world. And there is forgiveness that is available to you. And I want to encourage you with that. This is redemptive. It is redemptive. And if you're here and you're like, I have a secret, I have a trouble, I have a struggle, I can't share this with anybody. Would you please allow the shepherds 
that God has placed over you to help you. We're not going to blush. We want to help. And you can discreetly connect with us, set something up sort of generically, whatever, talk, call. But please do not allow obsession to meet with opportunity. Right now, I want to pray for the marriages in our church. And I'm going to ask, if you're here with your spouse, would you stand? All right. I want you to look at each other. I mean, seriously. Let's, let's do a look here. Married couples. The person that you are looking at right now. Now, you're all not doing it. I want you to do it, okay? The person that you are looking at is who God has placed in your life. You are displaying in this relationship the love that Christ has for the church. This is a very special person. And that covenant that you have with one another is precious and is worth fighting for. And so I want to pray for you. Let's all pray together. Would you join with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we just pause here at the end of this service and Lord, we know that you have love for this whole room and we have people in different stages of life here and stages of relationship, married, single, widow, divorce, all of that. And Lord, I just pray grace upon all in this room right now, but we have our brothers and sisters who happen to be here with their spouse today. And we want to pray for them. Lord, we pray that this covenant that you have given to them, that you have united them together, that this covenant would be strong. Lord, I pray that you would protect the hearts and the minds of husbands and wives. Lord, may they fight against the Aphrodite culture that we live in. May they fight for their marriage. And Lord, I pray that you would keep our marriages from rooftop experiences. And I pray that you would be pleased with this. Lord, I pray also for singles here who our call is to fight for our purity and to live this out at least in a stage of celibacy. Father, I pray that you would help us to do so in a manner that is glorifying to you. It is very, very difficult. But we know that our Savior Jesus is well acquainted with our weaknesses and intercedes for us, and we ask that he would on our behalf. But we love you, and we thank you for the cross of Christ who provides forgiveness, restoration, and new life. Help us to walk in that new life, we pray this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Go do the walk in purity. Amen.